This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Johnny Garrett. Now, Johnny has an incredible story. His grandfather was a firefighter in Newcastle, UK, and his crew were the first ever awarded the Certificate of Merit, an equivalent of the Medal of Honor, in the British Fire Service. Johnny became enamored with his grandfather as a young boy, and thus the fire service. So we discuss a host of topics from his grandfather's heroism and service, the impact he had on his own journey, watchmaking, altruistic business, and so much more. Now, Johnny was kind enough to gift me a watch, and I am not someone who normally wears jewelry, but I have to say, not only is this a piece of firefighting history that I get to wear on my wrist now, it is an absolutely beautiful timepiece that I will be wearing on more formal nights out. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can make sure they get to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Johnny Garrett. Enjoy. Well, Johnny, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. It's your afternoon, my morning here, and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. No worries. A pleasure to be on. Excited to uh, to get talking. Now, with English years, I can tell immediately where you are from. Um, but for people listening, tell me where you're sitting right now. Well, actually, where I'm sitting right now isn't actually in Newcastle, which is where I'm from. Ah, okay. Um, yes, yeah. So I'm actually in Brighton at the minute, so the opposite end of the country. Um, so me and my fiance are working here for a week because uh, this weekend we're actually off for the British Firefighter Challenge in Hull, which is a, a very glamorous location if anybody's visited the UK. Um, but yeah, originally I'm from a place called Hexham, which is 20 miles west of Newcastle, up near the Scottish border. Beautiful. Yeah, the uh, Brighton as well. I'm, I'm in Florida now. So, you know, when I grew up, the beaches were either covered in shingle or they were kind of muddy brown. And now, you know, absolutely spoiled with the, the Florida beaches. So when I think of Brighton, I think of old people in deck chairs. Definitely. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that. It's very, <laughs> very busy at the minute as well with the good weather. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, I normally start with kind of your birth, you know, the beginning of your life. But obviously, with this conversation, we need to go back two generations. So let's talk about, as far as you know, the knowledge that you've been passed on. Tell me about what you know of your grandfather's entry into the fire service and then some notable moments in his career. Yeah, absolutely. So, so my grandfather, um, was called William Wood. Um, he served in the Newcastle and Gateshead Fire Brigade for 25 years. He was on the Blue Watch and he was always, always known as the sort of safe and older pair of hands. Very charismatic guy. I mean, 
I, I, I don't know if you agree with me, James, but I just think grandparents were built differently to this kind of generation, uh, real sort of salt of the earth kind of character. And um, my, my memories really were the, were the fondest memories of, of anybody who's really touched my life. Um, he grew up himself, um, always known that he wanted to be using his hands, always known he wanted to be uh, a first responder. And he has stories, and my grandmother has stories, um, from just crazy sort of initiations and things in the fire department. Because back then, obviously, the sort of health and safety and standards that are in place now didn't, didn't exist. And I'm sort of wincing when I'm hearing some of these, these things that he's telling me. But Give me an example. I mean, because that's the thing, we don't get that anymore. I mean, especially now, you know, everything's called hazing, you know, like it's some horrendous kind of hate crime when back in the day you would get strapped to a backboard and, you know, covered in the fridge's contents and buckets of water dumped on your head. So what are some of the stories of what that looked like back in the 50s? So there was a there was one (laughs) one story that my grand told where my granddad just disappeared for like three days um, where he went on to a, a call out. And um, he actually went into a building and, and the visor or the uh, equipment that was protecting his eyes was, was so poor at the time uh, that he got, I guess, ash in his eyes and had to get rushed to the hospital in the Newcastle infirmary. And um, back then, things like communication and telephones and even remembering your landline, whether it existed at that time, was, uh, was a very difficult thing. So for like three days, he just, he just completely disappeared off the map. And then all of a sudden, he rocks up three days later and just says to my gran, oh, yeah, it was a bit of a bit of a sketchy kind of fire that I had to get into. But in this day and age, obviously, you'd be frantic and you'd be able to pin that person down. Um, and there was also conversations around breathing apparatus and just sending the probies and uh, and the trainees in, in, into buildings. And you just sort of think they haven't got the breathing apparatus to be able to, to, to tackle what's in there. But it was all part of the culture that was embedded in the fire department all those years ago. Beautiful. So I know one of the the notable rescues that you write about on the website was in 1966 that he was a part of. So talk to me about that fire. Yeah, so that was a a real milestone for my grandfather and the firefighters who went into that specific fire because uh, they effectively uh, saved five small children from a really severe house fire. And they were one of the only, well, they were the first firefighters of their time in the northeast of England to be awarded with a certificate of bravery for the actions that they take that they took to be able to to save these children and to be able to get such an accolade um, was such a such a beautiful thing because back then obviously to to be the first person ever in your fire service to do it um, is something that that is is to be remembered and I know when we talk about certificates of bravery or, or lifetime awards or twenty five year service awards it's a very um, it's not so rare to see now, but back then, these sort of guys and girls were were really sort of um, visionaries and, and doing things that hadn't been done before. So t- talk to me about what you know about that fire then. So there were five kids trapped. What were the challenges that made their efforts so heroic that, that got them a medal? Yeah, I mean, and this is the thing when it comes to a lot of the, let's say, bureaucracy and red tape that stands between firefighters and fires these days where there's a certain line of command that you have to go through in order to get the approval that you need to access a fire. Back then, it wasn't like that. You'd literally get there, 
the firefighters determined with this specific fire and my grandfather, they knew exactly what they needed to do at that moment. And they acted to be able to get those five small children out of the fire. And sometimes I think the deliberation and the roadblocks and challenges that are put in place before you even arrive at the fire these days can be an inhibitor um, to, to just really getting in there and, and doing what it says on the tin and, and actually saving lives and fighting fires. So, yeah, I think the reason was their bravery, their, their quick tact, um, and knowing exactly what they had to do and sort of falling back onto their training as well, um, which they took very seriously uh, at the time to, to get those children out of the fire. So what have you heard about the training itself? Because that's when you talk about red tape, there in some places is a lot of um, box checking. You know, and that kind of core lives depend on you philosophy, the true burning why that is in a lot of responders sometimes gets diluted as it goes up the chain. So, you know, what what was the, the ownership of those skills back then that you've heard? It was more so um, really everybody was part of a unit, but also you were you knew that if you if you took a decision, you wouldn't have to fall back onto sort of being questioned about your actions and potential cases being opened up. And I guess it was a lot less, I wouldn't say litigious, more so there was, um, if, if, if a firefighter is given the responsibility to be able to fight fires, they were given that, that full autonomy to do so without having to potentially ask certain chains of command to be able to do that. So when my grandfather talked about his training back in the day, it was brutal. Uh, it was really, really brutal training. They were really chucked into effectively a live fire situation, but that that was the way that they survived. And obviously the type of equipment and apparatus that they had at that time compared to now is um, the, the, the delta between the two is just absolutely insane. I mean, they would talk about the clothing that they actually had on would just melt. It just wasn't even fireproof, um, which is it's crazy to us now thinking about it, but Back in the day, that was a, a very, very normal thing. And this is why when I said earlier that I think our grandparents' generation were built differently, God, you can understand why. And it was wool tunics, wasn't it, that they wore back then? Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. And even, even the evolution of the helmets. So a, a big part of what what I do now is, is obviously we'll get onto it, but I, I produce watches in dedication to my grandfather and firefighters and first responders internationally. And a big piece of what makes our watches unique is the fact that we take genuine upcycled firefighter materials and we put them inside our watches. An example of that is a 1920s British brass firefighters helmet, which we melt down. We take into Hatton Gardens in London and we, we effectively emboss each of them with our William Wood helmet logo and actually put it in the watch case. So we say there's a hundred years of firefighting history inside. But if you look at a helmet from the 1920s, which was brass, and then it went to something like cork, and now it's a, a more of like a fiberglass kind of plastic. I mean, brass surely conducts heat. And even the shape of the helmet, it, it, it's so tiny. I, I don't even know who would, who would fit a helmet of that kind of size. So I don't know, it makes me laugh when you when you go right back and you see some of the original attire that they had to wear. Well, that's something that I know, you know, I, I rub people the wrong way when I talk about this, but it's just a truth that needs to be spoken. I spent 14 years in the fire service in America, worked east and west coast. And on the east coast, the very, very kind of 
passionate about the giant leather helmet. Um, and on the West Coast, actually, they have a much smaller, more fiberglass, you know, based helmet. And working out West, I realized, wow, this is just so much more user friendly. And then you see in America, I don't know if you've been exposed to this, an almost belittling of the European helmets. Oh, it's a spaceman helmet and all this stuff. But when you actually look at the technology in the most recent helmets, when you get it with all the bells and whistles, it is a far superior helmet, full stop. There's a flashlight in it, there's comms in the ears, there's, it exactly. comes all the way over your, your, you know, your head, it's low profile. Um, and so, to me, the helmet is a perfect example that, that mirrors mental health and some of these other discussions. You know, the old school, rub some dirt in it, don't be a pussy mentality resulted in a bunch of firefighter funerals. Well, I feel the same with the helmet. You know, we're clinging on to that 1920s, 1930s helmet where the rest yeah. of the world or most of them have progressed forward. So it's interesting that a helmet is at the core of this conversation because what yeah. you're using as an antique relic in your watches is a pretty much from the same era that they're still wearing on their heads today in America. It's unbelievable that really, isn't it? Because, and also that, as you say, the helmet is such a, a statement per country, really. If you look at all of, especially in the States, if you look at things like the retirement associations, so many of the retired associations or even the department logos will have in their design, the actual side profile of the helmet, which they're so proud of. And it's unbelievable that at the end of the day, everyone is doing the same job. They're, they're, they're saving lives from, from fires, but ultimately the technology and the, and the helmets that go from country to country are so different. And to be fair, there are some helmets are just really sexy as well. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a firefighter nerd, I must admit. So I collect a lot, of, a lot of apparatus and a lot of the vintage stuff looks really, really cool, but just isn't practical. Um, but yeah, things like the advanced technology of, of having the flashlight on the new helmets um, is, is, is really awesome. And I just wonder whether in the next, I don't know, 25 years onwards, whether uh, a, a country like America might, might adopt that. Maybe not, because the fire department is quite a traditional uh, route to go down. Yeah, but I think there's a difference between tradition and history. You know, and I talk yeah. about this a lot. Tradition is courage and, you know, uh, discipline and training and physical fitness and camaraderie, you know, history are the things that we wear upon us. So if that becomes vanity and you start being removed from your ability to do your job at the highest level, that's when you need to look in the mirror and say, is it time that we move forward? Yeah, agreed. And, and it's a, it's a really interesting debate that because something that we have found time and time again. So, William Woodwatchers has been around five and a half years. The amount of conversations we have with firefighters and fire departments, it's, it's, it's on a daily basis. And what we find, James, is such a frustration is we believe that we have, without a shadow of a doubt, the most incredible luxury product on the market, inspired and dedicated to firefighters. But the tradition of the fire department universally is when a firefighter comes to a retirement, a birthday, an anniversary, a passing out parade, straight away, the mentality is to go for either the wall-mounted axe or the statue, because that's the tradition. So your chief or your station manager will present this to you and it'll stand on your mantelpiece and you'll sort of appreciate your 25 plus year career. But we're sort of flipping it on its head and saying, well, would you not want to wear on your body every single day and hand down for generations to come a real piece of firefighting history uh, which is built in Switzerland, has all of the craftsmanship you'd find from a big Swiss luxury brand. And what do we find happens with these conversations? 
the tradition keeps the fire department from thinking, well, it's a nice new entrepreneurial idea, but it's not been like that for the last hundred years. So if I don't like the smell of it, it's not something I want to go for. And that's one of the biggest frustrations we found uh, with trying to grow the business further with fire departments. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's such great innovation. We talked about the SCBA. I mean, by far one of the, the biggest game changers, obviously, our gear, even though there are elements of it that may be making us ill. Some of the the um, the chemicals that are used in the production, but overall, you know, our gear allows us to make rescues and go deeper. So there is a lot of innovation. But yeah, there are, there there's kind of a a picking and choosing of the innovation that matches the facade, and then there's some that are discarded. So yeah, I'm I'm hoping there'll be a more open minded thing. And I think there is with the mental health. It's starting to resonate with the cancer. It's starting yeah. to resonate. And I think that you know, as we can kind of let go of the ego side and really focus on what is enabling us to do our job the best and then allow that to to kind of um progress on and yeah and i agree with you completely there's if you go to a fire academy you see the axe over and over and over again class whatever and they produce an axe and an axe and an axe and an axe it would be great to have other options as you said that you can only not only wear as a retiree but maybe you know your great great grandchildren will look at that watch and say yeah my my great grandfather your great great grandfather served back in <laughs> 2022 and this was his or this was hers yeah absolutely and there would be such a bond and a connection knowing that that's actually been worn and touched the skin for decades of uh, your grandfather or your relative actually wearing the piece. And that's the beautiful thing about um, a sector like watches. It's, it's such a generational thing. At the end of the day, watches last forever if serviced properly. They last indefinitely with a mechanical movement. The challenge, of course, is, is the budgets that go into the fire department over things like the military. All you have to do is go on to the different tenders and contracts available with things like the military and these, these multi-billion dollar contracts. Um, and the fire department, unfortunately, lacks a lot, of this, a lot of this budget. So with innovation comes cost. And if they haven't got the budget to be able to buy the latest equipment, then you're always going to be limited. Yeah. Well, I think and also longevity, and I'll give you a perfect example. Well, firstly, with the axe, I have an axe, but it's the axe I actually use, which is far more valuable and, you know, far more of a tradition than a facade axe. You know what I mean? But Beaver Fit, the fitness company that's, that's British based originally, make the most amazing equipment that is absolutely pertinent to the fire service. You can leave it outside. You can pull it out from a bay, assemble it on a back apron, work out on it and then put it all away. <clears throat> But just like you said, I've been trying to get them on as a sponsor and I hope that one day I can because I think our profession needs them. But it's super easy for them to get a, you know, a PO from the military and then be able to just disperse it willy nilly. Whereas every exactly. fire service, especially in America, is siloed. So they've got to address this city and this county and this district. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and so that becomes a barrier to entry. So each of these departments end up reinventing the wheel themselves, mm-hmm. choosing the low bid equipment and then wasting a huge amount of money. So I hope one day I can work with Beaver Fit and get them to be the go-to brand because to me, it's a little bit more money, but that, as your watch, will be standing mm-hmm. in that station 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. Exactly. And you, James, you've literally taken the words out of my mouth as to exactly the struggle that we have been going through um, really for, for the entire tenure of the business. Because it's such a decentralized state-by-state state, um, 
sort of ruling by each fire department. You can approach one fire department and have a really good sort of fruitful conversation, try and have the exact same conversation with a neighboring state. And it's just met with, with, a, with a blank face. And this is the difficulty, but also what I appreciate at the same time, because in, in the UK, it feels like there is a bit more of a unification. Um, even though there is 52 firefighting regions in the UK, it seems like the sort of governing governing bodies and the associated companies that support them um, seem to pass through similar kind of requirements and, and terms. So I can have similar conversations with different fire departments. But state by state in the US, what I like is I feel like you have to have boots on the ground. I physically fly out. I knock on the HQ. I was in, we had a watch show in San Francisco in April. We have all the watches there with us. I thought, why not just knock on the on the HQ door, try and get as far to the commissioner as possible? And we got right up to the chief commissioner's office and we're able to show the watches to the assistant to the commissioner. And I really think that's the way that you expand as a brand with the axes, with our watches, is you have to have boots on the ground uh, and you have to be doing in-person conversations state by state. Absolutely. Well, let's get to your timeline then, because I want to also kind of explore your experience with your grandfather, especially as he retired out of the fire service. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in a really nice little market town called Hexham. And Hexham is in a county called Northumberland. It sits just south of Hadrian's Wall. So if you have seen the film Braveheart and you know that famous scene with Mel Gibson, that was literally right where um, I was born. It's, it's a place that I absolutely love going back to, full of history. It's got, this is the thing about, about a county like Northumberland. You've got Annick Castle, which is where Harry Potter was filmed. You've got Bamborough Castle. You've got, just go a little bit to the west, you've got the Lake District, you've got Hadrian's Wall, you've got R Roman ruins. It's it's a stunning, stunning place. And I'm always, uh, it always puts a smile on my face thinking about it. Um, I have one sibling. She is uh, two years older than me. Um, we were born and raised in Hexham for the first 18 years of our life. She went off to university, moved to London, and I followed her sort of two years later. Um, my grandparents were uh, living in a place called Long Framlington, which is, again, about probably 30 miles north of Newcastle. Always had an exceptional relationship with them. As I say, my grandfather was the biggest role model I've ever had in my life. He passed away, sadly, in 2009 due to pulmonary fibrosis, which is the disease to the lungs. And you can obviously think about 25 years in the fire service, retiring in 1982, going back to what we said about breathing equipment. Um, Probably a prolonged career has had an impact on uh, on his uh, his cardiovascular system, but my grandmother's still alive. And uh, the cool cool thing is, I see her wearing our watches with her husband's name on it and my granddad's name on it, and it's just one of the most beautiful things you could ever see. And when she hears about all of the fantastic things we're doing overseas and the charitable donations we're making. Um, it's a, it's a really, really special thing. So my, uh, my parents, my, my dad was always very entrepreneurial. My mom, um, really stayed at home and raised me and my, me and my sister, but the entrepreneurial bug definitely rubbed off from my dad on me. And I always knew that one day 
And I think this is very unique. One day I always knew that I would want to run a business which would feel like a sort of family-run business that I would do for the rest of my life. No exit plan, making decisions now for decades to come. Um, and it, and it, it happened. And, and every day I do this, it has never felt like a job. And um, it just feels like when people use the word fulfillment, that's how I feel every day doing what I do. That's amazing. Well, you talked about Hadrian's Wall. I mean, I didn't know until I watched Braveheart that the Scottish were rescued by an Australian. So that really was a, an enlightening moment in my history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so circling back to your, your grandfather for a second. So that's the thing, the pulmonary fibrosis, when you look back at pre-SCBAs or, you know, certainly a, a lack of understanding of overhaul and needing to protect our lungs, you know, that's, I think, the sad fact of that generation. And as with so many people, I, it's not when they're on the job that most of them suffer. It's when they retire. And I don't know if it's the same yeah. in the UK, but in America, the moment that door closes behind you on your last day, you cease to be a statistic in the fire service. Like you're not counted anymore. There's no benefits for you. There's no healthcare for you. And you might drop dead on the apron on the back of the station. And that will not factor as a firefighter death. So. How is that in the UK? I mean, you know, after these men and women retire, is there an element of care for them post-service and are they factored into the statistics in the UK? Yes. So something that so many people don't know is by simply being a firefighter in the UK, you are automatically enrolled to be a beneficiary of the firefighters charity. Not only is my grandfather a beneficiary, but my grandmother is too. And the amazing thing is our main charitable donator that we uh, donate a percentage of our sales to every year is the firefighters charity. And my grandfather suffered an injury when he was a firefighter and he got sent to their uh, recuperation facilities in a place called Little Hampton. Um, and they helped recuperate him back to health to, to go back into, into the fire department. And what's awesome is every single year we're donating sort of north of five figures every year to the firefighters charity. And it's such a beautiful moment handing that check over, knowing that it's somebody that helped my grandfather all those years ago. But what's really cool is you are automatically a beneficiary. So you can get financial support. So sort of welfare, psychological um, and physical therapy support from people like the firefighters charity. Now, what I think the, what I think the UK and the US fire departments lack are very, very well-run retirement associations which are recognized by their fire department. Because what I find is a firefighter will do many decades of, of being a firefighter and then all of a sudden they retire and something that they've loved so dearly, they don't have a facility to be able to meet up with their old cronies, have a conversation, go for a beer, maybe go to a firefighter museum, go, for a, go to a ball game or whatever. Um, there has to be, in my opinion, better retirement associations, which feed information through um, from their main fire department so that they still feel part of the department that they have given so much to. And certainly in the UK, I can probably name out of 52 regions, five good retirement associations. The other sort of, let's say, 47, if I'm doing the maths right, I don't even think they exist, which is a really, really sad thing. 
Yeah, and it's the same here. And the thing, the one thing that you got going for you in the UK is at least there's national health. And I think when yeah. fully funded and supported and staffed is the best healthcare system on the planet. There's some people that don't want any of their money going towards helping someone else. And then they go to church and pray and then come out and then they're an asshole again. But, you know, I think yeah. most altruistic people <laughs> will be more than happy to have a proactive healthcare system that enables most people to be healthy contribute to a fund that will help the young the old the infirm because one day we're all going to be in one of those categories anyway um and therefore you don't have this bureaucracy that we have here where a retiree then loses his healthcare benefits or her healthcare benefits one year they got offered this ridiculous thing called cobra that no one can afford and that's it they're done no healthcare and then you see them working you know 60 70 years old in in a supermarket bagging you know groceries just so they can pay their their health insurance so it's it's such a shitty situation over here with that and i think that's one thing that, that we do well in the uk is that whether you're a firefighter or not a firefighter you're gonna have health care your whole life and i think that's a phenomenal system that we have but that tribe that that incredible camaraderie that you're in in a good you know fire station when that's just sudden suddenly taken from people firstly you've lost all that experience the the knowledge that your grandfather had on firefighting that for example i could have learned from is an encyclopedia of knowledge and to just lose that the moment they walk out the fire service is tragic and to be able to bring these men and women back in and storytell knowledge share for the young firefighters i think is important but as you said as well all those years and all of a sudden you're a stranger to the to the crew now having that network as you transition out almost kind of like the the royal legion or you know they have versions of it here um i think it's much needed and then yeah or even doctors and nurses and you know police officers and dispatchers all those groups that have worked in life-saving professions, you can't just cut the cord and then throw them out into the, the cold. You can't, you can't. And that's why something that we're really passionate about is we also sponsor the London Fire Brigade Boxing Club. So we provide all of the equipment um, for all firefighters past and present in the LFB to be able to, at the end of the day, go in there, and, and beat the hell out of a bag if they've had a really bad day or learn certain certain boxing routines, but also excel their boxing to a certain level. We've just been able to fund sending eight firefighters over to Rotterdam for the World Firefighter and Police Games, which is happening this weekend. Uh, so they're going to be boxing over there. We're also the sponsor of the London Fire Brigade Rugby Club. Again, I just think there's such a such a synergy between sport which is that team, using your terminology earlier, the camaraderie, the feeling of, of being part of a unit, taking them away from the fire department where they can just talk about some of the tragic things they've seen. But again, not just serving firefighters past and present to get involved. I love it. Now, have you crossed paths with Reorg at all, the Royal Marine Charity? No. Okay, that's that's probably a group of people that you'd love as well. Um, it was started by uh, Sam. I'm blanking on his last name now. Um, but Mark Ormrod, and you're familiar with him, triple amputee, yeah. incredible athlete. Mm -hmm. um, he's part of that organization too. But uh, yeah, they're doing a very similar thing with Royal Marines through jiu-jitsu, through boxing, through you know other sports as well. And you know it's absolutely incredible to watch. And, and so mm -hmm. people like the charities that you've mentioned with the sponsorship, with companies like you that actually understand it, um, and reorg with the Royal Marines. I mean, that's what I see over and over again. It's the men and women on the ground that look around, realize something needs to change, and they just take the reins themselves. And yes, the agencies should really be having all these in place already. 
But failing that, some of these incredible people that have already served an entire career now step up and create these charities too. Exactly. And I think what, where, what, what, certainly what I see in the UK is there's a lack of private sector investment into supporting um, first responding sectors. So why, why does it have to be a private company? I mean, what, we are very honored to do it. But as you say, should it not be part of the infrastructure and the blueprint that these clubs are in place already? And it almost has to be private sector companies like us that are so passionate and wedded to the industry to be able to um, reinvest profits into these organizations for them to happen. That shouldn't be the case. There should be a budget carved out each year, let's say from the London mayor, to be able to do it in that specific region. And it should be like that all around the UK and all around the US. And again, that is why I think we have such a community and a following with what we do with the watches, because they're just... Firefighters are just thankful that a, a luxury watch company, private sector, is dedicating every single possible collection forever to firefighters. That in itself elevates and promotes firefighting to a whole new audience of watch enthusiasts, of individuals who love horology, timekeeping, um, and just a private sector company doing that is, is really, really unique and something that I think you probably see more in the U.S., but in the UK, it's so limited. Yeah. Well, I've had a few people on that. Um, their business model is what they call social business. And I love that. If if there is an altruistic element to every single sale that creates, again, that burning why. So every time I sell product X, you know, 5%, 10%, whatever, is automatically going to go into this part that's for this charity. And I love that because I think in the US, when I was a young man, you know, the 80s was the yuppie era. It was all about me, me, me. It was all about smash the competition, mm. create a monopoly, you know, build right next to your competitor and try and put them out of business versus looking at it as like, all right, well, I want to make money. I'm a business person. You know, I want to, I want to grow my business and get the, yeah. the, the home that I want for my family. But at the same time, I can contribute and, and factor this in into my profits and help support this amazing nonprofit that I'm passionate about. And I think that's the business model of the future. I really do. You have summed up exactly the direction of travel that we are going in. We see not just the watch industry going in, but I think that's what the consumer wants these days. The consumer now wants to know that there is a charitable angle, a corporate social responsibility. Your products are have some kind of green, sustainable impact, um, and that you're just doing good, good stuff. That you you can be a business these days that produces an awesome product and an awesome service, but actually gives back. Um, and that that's really what what our entire business has has been built on. Um, and we are we are we have huge charitable um, growth aspirations. I mean. In the last five and a half years, we've donated already over $100,000 just to firefighting charities, because that's the other thing. During things like COVID, we had certain PR agencies who were coming up to us going, wouldn't it be cool if you did a project where you donated to a, a COVID-esque uh, charity? Now, yes, to give back, it would be amazing, but we know what our values are. We know what we stand for. We're firefighters. We're never going to change from that. That's our core value, and we're going to be doing that for decades. But COVID's so hot right now, though, bro. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, the That's thing. exactly it, isn't it? That's the <laughs> yeah, point. Exactly. No, 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 no. Now yeah. Ukraine. Ukraine is so hot right now. Can you do some Ukrainian yeah. charities? Oh, wait a second. No. Gas prices. Can you sponsor gas prices? Like it never fucking ends. <laughs> exactly. It's just what what is the flavor of the month? And the, and this is the thing as well. The consumer is not stupid. If you just keep coming up with a different charitable project, which just shifts to the trend which is happening, um, they're going to see straight through you. Now. We do shift and change when it impacts firefighters. For example, January 2020, the Australian bushfires. There was a watch auction which was happening. It was called Watch and Act, and it was dedicated purely to giving back to the Australian Bushfire Relief Fund. Straight away, we pivoted. We said we want to be involved. There was 21 Swiss luxury watch brands in there. We were one of the only independent brands. We were the fourth highest bid that came in for our watch and there was $150,000 big check given to the Australian Bushfire Relief Fund. So we will pivot if it's going to support firefighters for a tragic event that obviously we can we can support. Beautiful. Well, I mean, again, that speaks so clearly of of your ethos and I love it. I mean, 5.11 is a sponsor of the show. They do so much as far as, you know, nonprofit work um, or contributing to nonprofits and, and you know, inspirational figures. Thorn, the, the supplement company, another one, same, same thing. They're actually supporting um, a nonprofit a friend of mine is doing where they're traveling the globe in seven days. They're going to do seven skydives, seven marathons, and seven swims on seven continents in seven days. And that's all wow. we're coming from a, a burn-injured um, treatment center for charity that he has and also a mental health side. So the, they're behind that. So, you know, just there are these incredible companies, and I love highlighting them. So we talked yeah. a lot about watches. Let's go to the origin story then. So you're a young man now. Talk to me about your relationship with your grandfather and the impact that had on you. Yeah, I I guess going back to the point of always knowing that I had a burning desire, excuse the pun, to one day do something that I would do for the rest of my life. I always knew that it would have to be dedicated to somebody or something that had impacted my life so drastically that it would make me skip out of bed. I always say that you don't need an alarm clock, passion should wake you up. And Without any hesitation, the first person, my grandfather. So then everything around what the product would be, the business, how we would give back, just my grandfather was the absolute uh, anchor in all of that conversation. And that was because I had just never met anybody like what my grandfather was like. He would walk into a room, he would brighten up the room. Even just the memory I have of even just his hands, it was like he had hands like spades because he was constantly using them every day he had like thick leather leather skin it just it was like the sort of safe protective kind of feeling um but at the same time he was he knew how to have a laugh and he just had this this aura about him uh where people would just want want to talk to him people were magnetized to him and my grandfather i'm very lucky because my grandfather even to this day it is is one of is the only person that I've that I've lost in my immediate family, and um, there isn't a day goes by that I don't think about him because every single thing that we're doing is wedded around his legacy. And I'm sure we'll we'll come on to it, but a, a big, big, huge milestone which put goosebumps uh, and made the the hairs on the back of my neck stand up was just last month. We finally produced a watch for the New York Fire Department. 
the biggest fire department in the world. Five years of conversations with the board finally came around and we were given the approval. Me and my fiance, who works a lot with me on the business and has seen um, us go from nothing to where we are today, we flew out to New York and putting the watch into the Rockefeller Center in the FDNY shop with my granddad's name on the dial, surrounded by FDNY products and firefighters, was really one of the most special moments that have ever happened in the journey of William Wood Watches. Um, and it's, it's days like that where you almost have to pinch yourself to think that memories that I had with my grandfather pre-2009 are now literally locked in a timepiece. Um, transatlantic in the Rockefeller Center is, is, is unbelievable. Now, did you have any conversations with your granddad about the 343 firefighters we lost that day in September 11th? Yes, uh, we did. Um, and to this day, I mean, my, my grandfather, like everybody, just couldn't actually comprehend what had actually happened. Because at the time, I'm 30, so at the time I was young. I remember I came home one day with my, my friend from school. I saw it on the telly and we thought we were watching a film. We didn't know that it was actually reality. That was so hard to actually comprehend. And I think what my grandfather took away from it was 9-11 was such a turning point for the US to also really respect firefighters and first responders. But also it, that movement went overseas. It came into the UK too. 9-11 is something that will never, ever disappear from anybody's mind. Never, never forget as, as, um, as the statement is. And my grandfather felt that there was a real rising in support of firefighters and first responders, even in the UK as well. Um, but it's, yeah, to this day, I mean, for instance, the FDNY chairman who helps run the FDNY store, he was one of the most senior people in the FDMY, and he got appointed in January 2001. So he was there right throughout September 11th. And some of the conversations and obviously what he was, the meetings and what, that he was pulled into and, and some of the things that, that he saw on that day was, was truly unbelievable. Um, but yeah, my, my grandfather was heavily impacted by that, like so many overseas. Well, I remember being young. I wanted to be a firefighter when I was a kid. Um, we had a few fires on my farm. My dad had a veterinary practice, so we had a fire in the actual building. We had hay barns that were caught on fire that the fire brigade was on for hours and hours and hours. Um, and uh, But at the time, I remember also all the strikes. Like Our men and women in uniform were not well-respected, were not, not well-supported. I think they were respected by the average person, but there yeah. wasn't that support. That you know. And then I think what they saw in the U.S. was a very similar thing. But then what's sad is fast forward a few more years and that kind of dropped off again. And you know that whole never forget has been forgotten. And it's sad because no, you shouldn't dwell on it and constantly be grieving. You have to move on. But understanding the sacrifices of not only the responders, but all the courage of the men and women that were in New York and the surrounding areas that were affected. What a slap in the face if you just kind of forget about it and now you're all, you know, uh, like a spoiled brat again, complaining about your iPhone when only 20 short years ago, we were, you know, at the, the brink of an international war. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think the at the end of the day, 
human beings have a, I mean, all you have to do is look at the Ukraine war as well, because that's not in the media anymore. It seems like a lot of the conversation has been moved away from that. 9-11 to this day is probably the most tragic event that's ever happened in, in, in humanity. And it has, apart from obviously previous world wars, etc. but it should be something which should never be forgotten. And I guess something that I want to call out are companies like Tunnel to Towers. I don't know if you've heard of them. Yeah, but- I actually climbed um, the One World Trade with um, Rob Jones, who's a double amputee Marine veteran. Um, and uh, that was one of the Tunnel to Towers events. Stephen Siller's parents were actually at the top when we got there. Was Did you do that one just gone last month or was that prior years? No, it was pre-COVID. So I think it was about, if I'm not mistaken, about three years ago now. But I mean, I, you yeah. know, I'm blessed to have all my limbs and Rob basically bear crawled 100 and whatever floors it was that day. Absolutely in- just incredible to watch. It's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And what they stand for, that organization came about because, as you know, of 9-11, if it was the brothers and sisters and siblings of of Stephen Siller who pulled that company together and that foundation. And what absolutely blows my mind, and this is why we are so honored to be able to work with them, is they are paying off the mortgages of fallen firefighters' families. So not just firefighters, military personnel too. I have just never seen anything like it before. So Larry at Tunnel to Towers will will have a conversation. He, he runs all of the marketing team there. And he'll go, Johnny, yeah, we've just paid off another 25 mortgages of, of firefighter families. And you're just thinking, it's one of the most special organizations I've, I've ever come across. And that's New York mortgages. So we're not talking about Florida mortgages either. We're talking about very expensive mortgages. Yeah, well, they're actually building homes as well. So, so they're building homes from scratch with uh, construction developers that they know to sometimes, sometimes just rehouse families into incredible four-bed detached homes. But not just that, they are then changing and refurbishing the home, for instance, potentially for an amputee or somebody who is wheelchair-bound. So they're making it accessible for them and changing the whole house to be able to benefit them. And when I see efforts like, efforts like that in America... Again, I hate to compare, but compared to the UK, um, it just absolutely blows my mind. And uh, again, that's an organization where we, we, we actually produced a model one of one watch and it sold for $19,000 and we donated all of the proceeds to Tunnel to Towers. And it was, again, an action like that that blew our mind because the watch retailed for about $3,000. And from there, our relationship with that organization has developed and we'll be doing the the tunnel to towers run the five kilometer run we're going to be doing that with them as well and uh, getting involved in their fundraising beautiful now with just one more thing while we're on the new york theme um this was purely like a social media connection i've had nancy carbone from friends of firefighters on a couple of times is that another organization that you work with it's not it's a, it's a, an organization we'd love to work with and actually i've just had a message from one of our best customers who is a fire captain in new york saying you have to speak to nancy um so that's the second time i've heard her name in a week brilliant all right well then i'm looking forward to hearing where that goes so back to the journey then let's talk about um actually i want to hit one more point before we kind of get through to the watchmaking side you talked about your grandfather's you know, ultimate lung ill health that, that you know, he ultimately succumbed from. Um, 
when you look back now with this fresh set of eyes that you have at 30 years old with seeing all these different firefighters from different parts of the world and understanding now the mental health element as well when you look back at your grandfather were there any elements of the job that you recognized in him as you were growing up with him yes i mean i guess a a, a big part and a big differentiation between then and now and what he was doing then and firefighters now is the conversation back then mental health wasn't really a thing let's be honest that, that there was no conversation amongst colleagues my grandfather wouldn't come home and and tell my grandmother or or me about some of the horrendous things that he was seeing naturally in a fire um where today i would hope but again I'm not a firefighter. I'm not seeing it firsthand. I would hope that there is more of a conversation happening. Just the very fact that there's podcasts like what you're doing here allows people to actually hear that somebody else is going through some of the really difficult things that firefighters and first responders have to actually go through. So I think the the, the biggest leap that has been made is, is the mental health conversation because I just look back to, I mean, my grandfather must have had some kind of, post-traumatic stress and uh, and things that he'd seen. But I just think it was in their era just to bottle it all up and just say that it was part of that generation. Absolutely. I think that's the misnomer is, you know, that's, that's what real men do. And obviously it's not. If you are able to process it and talk about it and grow from it, that makes you a stronger man, you know, or a stronger woman. And then that suddenly some of the people that bottled up, obviously he came on the physiological side, but there's many of his peers, I'm sure, that probably the mental side is what took their lives. All right, well then, moving on to watches then. So you're inspired by your grandfather. Walk me through the genesis of deciding that watches is where you're gonna, or that watches are the business that you're gonna start building. And then the the incredible correlation between the fire services and the watches that that you're uh, producing now it's a really just incredible journey um to go from literally a standing start of an idea to say we're going to look to take on the luxury watch world because i think something which is really important to probably say right now is we don't just have firefighters buying our watches. If you look at our our um, sort of demographic of customers, about 70% of our customers are watch enthusiasts. 30% are firefighters. And the reason for that is watch enthusiasts can empathize with our story. They have a grandparent, a parent, or someone that they know who is a first responder and can connect with exactly what we're trying to do and, and how we're giving back. And that's a really important point because from the outset, I wanted to make sure that I was building a watch brand that would be taken seriously on an international luxury watch stage. And this is why we are, we are actually now the 10th largest independent watchmaker in Britain. Now, again, saying that puts a smile on my face because that's an industry that goes back over 382 years. So to think in five years, we're now in place number 10, and this isn't against nine other brands making firefighter-inspired watches. This is against all watchmakers in Britain. I think that's quite a quite a proud moment. I'd say, but yeah, and uh, but we—that's the thing. Clearly, from the outset, 
I wanted to make sure that we built a brand that was respected and appreciated, not just as a brand that would serve as a, as a wonderful gift and a memento to a firefighter, which it absolutely does, but would be up there with a customer's collection who has an IWC, a Patek, a Rolex, an Audemars Piquet, a Tag Heuer, an Amiga. Um, that, was, that was what we wanted to have instilled in our um, plan moving forwards. So it all started in December 2016. As any good business starts, it was in a Weatherspoons. Uh, for any listeners who doesn't know what a weather, I do you want to explain a Weatherspoons? No, you probably do a better job than me. A Weatherspoons is a very sort of, I guess, to use the word, grimy, potentially ran down, salt of the earth kind of pub, which is a a big national chain in the UK. On every high street, you would find a Weatherspoons, and you'd always find. The same people go in there normally on a Sunday morning at, at, <laughs> at nine a.m. having a having a local pint there, um, so questionable time to have a drink. But basically, it was Boxing Day, December twenty sixteen. I was in Hexham. Uh, I went to my local Weatherspoons to celebrate Boxing Day, which is a big day in our local village. There was a friend there who had told me about a crowdfunding platform called Kickstarter. All that is, is it's a platform that allows people to be able to come with a business idea and go, guys, I've got an idea. If you like it, you can have a discount off it and we will take your money and we'll use it to build your your product from scratch. And in three or four months, you'll take delivery of it. That's all it is. And for me, when I learned about this, it was like fireworks going off in my mind because I always knew that I had a real appreciation not specifically for watches, but for the craftsmanship that goes into luxury items. I had a real, I guess, interest and potentially obsession into how can somebody produce something that takes months, has hundreds of components, and when it comes together, is like this exceptional item that tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people around the world wear, appreciate, and love. And every time I kept coming back to the mood board, it kept coming back to, number one, my grandfather. That was the anchor. The next bubble kept coming back to watches. Because in my opinion, men do not have many ways to express their personality. It's a watch. It's maybe maybe in their style or fashion sense. But again, we stick to blues and blacks, potentially white if we want to be brave or we got a tan. Um, maybe some bright socks. That's so true. Uh, such pasty, <laughs> yeah. pasty skin. Even a white shirt wouldn't help me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amen, amen. With my uh, Newcastle skin, but also what you tend to do when you find a good pair of pants, or we call them trousers, you you buy four or five pairs because they fit really well. Let's be honest. Um, but with a watch, you mull it over. You think about it. You think of its colours, how it will match certain outfits. How do you feel when you buy it? Because another important thing about buying a watch, people normally buy it for a big moment in their life. Are they getting married? Have they just got a promotion? Have they just signed a, an incredible deal? Are they going through an airport and they want to buy it to recognize a, a travel pursuit that they want to go on or a new adventure? So everything led to, to watches. Um, and from there, really... I was working, believe it or not, full-time. I don't know whether I, I sound like I was an ex-banker, but I worked in a bank uh, in London because I moved to London and I lived there for 10 years. And I was building the brand outside of working in a bank. 
And I would take annual leave to jump on a plane to Basel in Switzerland with a designer that I found from Newcastle with watch sketches of our first prototype. And we literally had seven or eight hours to fly in, go to the world's biggest trade show called Basel World and persuade world-class suppliers to start building our watches. We went in there, we did it, and the rest is history. Five years later, 10th largest independent watchmaker. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm making it sound like it was very easy, and there's, there's numerous ups and downs and milestones and difficulties and successes that happened along the way. Um, but in a nutshell, that, that's, that's how it all came about. Well, you said the word craftsmanship, and I agree completely. So one of the observations I've made, we have these massive malls in America, and they're full of chains. I mean, you know, if if, if you could put a Weatherspoons in there, that's where it would be probably. Um, <laughs> and t- the, the kind of, uh, what's the right word, materialism and consumerism of the 80s and 90s, um, you know, the Cabbage Patch dolls and all the other things that were rammed down people's throats that they were murdering each other on, you know, Black Friday yeah. or Boxing Day or whenever it was, um, you know, you, you take a step back and like, how the hell do we even get here? And I feel like we are now in this this renaissance of craftsmanship where you have these small breweries and bakers and butchers and there's a yearning to go back to where we were your grandfather's time, you know, when, when the watchmaker was in town, you know, you could actually get it repaired and get the strap redone. And, you know, that was, that was, you know, one of the skill sets of each of the people in the village or the town. And so I think your timing is perfect, especially with devices being strapped to us and a real yearning to disengage. I mean, there's a lot of people that love the smartwatches. I can't stand them. I don't want any technology around me when I go walk my dogs or if I'm, you know, anywhere where I'm trying to be present, my phone has to be somewhere else. You know, it's, it's, it's such a distraction. So being able to completely disengage and simply, you know, have, as you said, whether it's your, your identity as far as the, you know, what you're projecting of your overall image and or simply having time on you when you're off doing something, but you're leaving all the electronics behind in your car in your house whatever it is i think that ties into the same barbershop butcher baker coffee shop mentality that a lot of society is really pushing towards now yes and that that maturity in the consumer has progressed sixfold when we have been developing william wood watches because i look back and i'm just visualizing the original mood board at the time Fast fashion and fashion watches was a really big thing. You had brands like Daniel Wellington, MVMT. These were watches that you would walk into. Again, these are uh, British um, malls, Selfridges, probably less so much Harrods, Harvey Nichols. And you would go in and you would pick a watch for maybe £200. And the way the consumer has changed now is they want to support independent businesses who have that sort of family-run tendency, who are not owned by a big, massive conglomerate like an LVMH, who owns all these little brands below them, who don't have massive deep marketing uh, um, pockets, who are making decisions now that will actually give back to the generation that they live in and generations beyond that. And we see that all the time. The amount of inquiries we get where a customer will want to, for instance, we got a message yesterday saying, uh, if I purchase one of your watches from a retail outlet in uh, Kuwait, there's a boutique that we work for out there, 
I just want to make absolutely certain that the donation that you make from the sale will still go to the firefighters charity if I buy it in the boutique. Because if it doesn't, I'm not buying it in the boutique. I'm going to buy it through you. So if you go back to the sort of that, that 80s kind of um, everything in excess kind of mentality, I don't think you would have got uh, an inquiry like that. It would have been, can you give us a 10% discount? Um, can you give me a few few free straps? It's more about the impact rather than getting the best possible deal and crushing the competition. Absolutely, yeah. And I think potentially we're going to see a lot of those malls get it. I mean, we're seeing already a lot of these big you know, chain stores are closing down and I'm hoping that those spaces, mm-hmm. either they'll just bulldoze a whole mall and make an open space you know, with stores outside or at least put communal spaces because I think especially post-COVID, we realize how much we actually need interaction with other human beings and just going and wrestling your way through a giant, you know, an acre of, of clothes on racks is not a good interactive experience. So you can buy so much now online, some which is good, some which is bad, but you now can take that time that you're going to get in your car or on your bike or, or go walk to, you know, a, a, a place where people um, congregate and actually have human interactions again and in, and as you said buy to buy a watch that you know you're going to hand down from generation to generation versus to buy a watch that you know in three years is going to end up in the bin yeah because watches really is in the public spotlight as to how sustainable are they and this is this is what i preach a lot so we're a brand that upcycle. I never, ever say that we are a sustainable watch company. You won't see that on any of our marketing material. Because at the end of the day, to build a watch, it is numerous components which have been mined from the ground. There's a lot of metal. There's a lot of labor in our workshop in Switzerland that needs to be in place to pull it all together. But we will try to contribute to reducing the impact that the watches have on the planet. So we will try and have as much upcycling in it as possible. We will make donations back to charities. And that's a lot more than a lot of the luxury Swiss watch industry is doing. And I think that's what people appreciate. Um, However, what does make the watch industry sustainable is the very fact that watches are built to last forever. So rather than having 60 watches in your collection, You can be very happy buying your William Wood watch or another brand, and you can hand that down for generations to come, knowing that correctly serviced, it will be looked after for decades and centuries further. And that's that's what I think is one of the coolest things about watches. For me, they're almost like time capsules where they're passed on for generations. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the unique components that are related to the fire service, but just before we do, Talk to me about the actual um, mechanisms inside. You mentioned Switzerland. So what kind of quality and components are people looking at when they're purchasing one of your watches? So the really cool thing about what we have built and what we continue to build, we have to make sure that we always stay within an affordable distance of firefighters. Because at the end of the day, if we just were producing watches which were £10,000 plus, you are defeating the whole objective and your core values of why you were producing watches in the first place. And the brilliant thing is on a lot of our core ranges, you can choose whether you have a Swiss made, Swiss assembled, Swiss built watch, which obviously comes with a premium, 
or whether you want to have a Seiko Japanese-made movement. Because not everybody is really into the prestige of a Swiss-made watch. Not everybody wants to know, know the oscillating um, frequency per second or the, the, the jewels accuracy or the power reserve. People just want to know a watch keeps time. And that's why we have built watch cases where you can literally our workshop can take out the Swiss movement and put in the Seiko movement. Seiko builds a, a huge portion of the movements in today's um, watch industry. So that's really cool. You go to our website, you can choose whether you want a Japan-made movement or a Swiss-made movement. We have dress watches, which is our entry-level watch, available on either a nice leather strap or available on an upcycled fire hose strap. If you want to have something more rugged, you've got our diving watch. If you want to have something which is more heritage, you've got our bronze watches where the case is made from bronze. So it comes, it looks brand new. In six months' time, it ages, it patinas, it weathers. And every single case is different depending upon the person's wrist that, that you wear it on because the oxidization of that individual's sweat compared to that person's sweat changes the color of the case. And I think that's so cool. And then if you do really want the sort of top spec prestigious watch, well, we have that. We have a Swiss made Triumph collection. It's got dials inspired by a fire engine dashboard. It's got a checkered marking around the dial, which is the exact checkered marking off the side of a British fire engine. The sub dials are the pressure pump gauges. When you open up a fire hose, you'll see the gauge going around the dial. The second hand is the chime of a vintage fire bell. And in the back of the watch, you might even be able to see it here because I'm wearing one. It's got in case of fire break glass. Brilliant. So we made that movement one of a kind with Salita in Switzerland. And it's obviously a play on words, uh, sapphire crystal glass that protects the movement in case of fire break glass. That is amazing. Now, are they all battery? Are they um, wound? I mean, what, are the, what is the, the method of um, you know, keeping the time? Yeah, so we've got five collections, four of which are mechanical, one is quartz. So the quartz is battery operated. It's a Swiss made quartz battery, which has a 10 year battery life. The other four collections, they're all mechanical. So if you service them every three to five years, they're going to run indefinitely and uh, be able to be to be handed down for generations to come. Beautiful. Well, you talked about fire hose on the strap. So let's talk about brass helmets and you know recycled fire hose and, and all those components or, or elements that are in these watches as well, or in some of them. Yeah, so I guess what's really cool is one of our main statements as a brand is that every one of our watches has over 100 years of real British firefighting history beating through every component. So we take a 1920s British brass firefighter's helmet, it's melted down, it's taken to a family-run company who are um, experts in precious metals. There's a whole process that goes into it where the helmet is melted down, the residual brass is poured into this tree mold. Each stem of the tree mold has the mold of our firefighter helmet crown pressed into it. Once that's dried, it's then uh, protected, cooled, and it's placed inside every one of our watch crowns, which is awesome to know that somebody who actually wore one of these helmets over 100 years ago is actually worn in your watch case. And then what's really striking is the fact that every one of our watch straps are made from genuine upcycled fire hose donated to us by different fire departments all around the world. So the cool thing is, is we can actually track back every fire 
that the fire hose has been used in because the operations team of each fire department has to have that history and that inventory. So we have a red fire hose, which has been donated to us by the London Fire Brigade. The cool thing about that hose is sometimes it even has the original black authenticity patina on it. So you can see the words Angus Duraline, like you may have the cutout of the A or the N or the original number of the hose on your watch strap. We have a yellow hose from the West Midlands Fire and Rescue Service. We have blue, which is the dearest to my heart because it's from my grandfather's fire region of Tyne and Weir. You don't see many blue fire hose. We've got a green fire hose from the British Armed Forces Fire and Defence Unit. We've got orange from the Sacramento Fire Department. That's literally just come in. We've had those straps turned around and they launch next month. We've got purple. This came from a Japanese fire department. It took us five years to find. And that's now coupled up with our new Jubilee watch. And we actually have a black fire hose watch, uh, which is coming out very soon, as well as a turnout gear strap. That was so hard because turnout gear is designed to not allow any knife or sharp material to go through it. So every time we cut it up, it would fray. But now we've mastered a way that we can produce a really beautiful luxury watch strap from turnout gear. Well, we were talking before I hit record because I wanted to make sure that you know I got all my my information correct. But for some people listening, when they think of used fire hose and used turnout gear, there's also that worry about the carcinogen. So talk to me about the cleaning process and also the the silicon layer that actually sits on the skin itself. Yeah, it's a really important point. Uh, it's something that we have to take very seriously from the outset. So we have an external organization and body who comes in to give us all of the compliant approvals that we need to know that we're going through the right process to be able to protect the actual hose. So there is a, a protective sealant and layer which goes over the hose to make sure that there isn't any kind of irritation or direct contact to the skin and that it retains and holds in um, any kind of chemicals, et cetera, which could potentially be nasty to it to an individual. So we get all of the approvals that we need to be able to produce the straps in that fashion. Also, what's very important is there isn't a direct contact of the hose on the wrist itself. So we always knew that with upcycling, you could never make the whole strap from the fire hose because it's fire hose. It's not designed to be a luxury watch strap. So what we do is we take a silicon watch back strap and we stitch the hose into the silicon mold so that it's going into a proper purpose made functional watch strap with the actual hose stitched into the external uh, or exterior face rather than the interior and that's a way that we make sure that it doesn't have any kind of irritation as well because it's not touching the actual skin Brilliant. Yeah, because that's definitely a, a fear. I mean, carcinogens are, are definitely a, a hot topic these days. Um, in our gear, even as I mentioned earlier, in, in, within our gear that's not soiled, just the gear itself. Yeah. So, so that's a very important point. One more thing before we go to some closing questions. Warranties. Someone does purchase one of your watches. What is the kind of protection side for that? Yeah, you've got a three year international warranty. The thing is, we, we, Plan on being around for decades to come, as I say. So even when the watch is after, after the three-year warranty, it, let's be honest, we're still going to take it into the workshop. We're still going to service it, and it's still going to be repaired. So it's effectively a lifetime warranty, but for the website purposes, you always have to have a certain year period 
Um, and we say that it's three years, but after that, you can still have comfort that you can always come back to William Wood Watches and it will always be serviced and maintained. Fantastic. All right. Well, I want to throw some closing questions at you before I let you go. So the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books relate, uh, excuse me, let's say that again. Is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, many. Um, but the first one that comes to mind is David Goggins, You Can't Hurt Me. Um, I um, I think any founder has to be big on self-development and motivation. So I, I frequently listen to podcasts. I'm always reading sort of self-development books. David Goggins, you've probably read it yourself. He's an ultramarathon runner, phenomenal guy. The stories that he has is just remarkable. And he basically holds you accountable and, and says, when people say that you don't have time to do X, Y, and Z, if you just prioritize your day, he says, when you are, when you feel like you're done in the gym, you're only 40% there. And as an ultra marathon runner, the, the type, the type of mentality and mindset that he, that he has to have is huge. And I talked about it a bit earlier, but I think there is a definite transferable skill set of somebody who can push themselves physically in the gym, in an active job like firefighting and somebody who can push themselves in the business sense too. So that would be a definite recommendation for me. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I've, I've read his book and uh, he was supposed to be coming on and then I think they kind of put a, a hold on any interviews for a while. So hopefully in the future. All right. Well, then what about a film and or documentary that you love? Uh, so you talked about the Cabbage Patch doll. I know this is such a weird transition. Uh, I was in the gym today. I have watched The Last Dance Netflix series with Michael Jordan probably seven times through. I think there's about 10 to 12 episodes. It is mind-boggling. It's one of the most inspiring documentaries I've ever seen. I think Michael Jordan is the best athlete to ever touch this planet, the best leader, um, and talk about holding people accountable and coming in and training every single day. And, and if you think... God, if my leader and my captain is doing that, then I have to hold myself accountable to it. And the reason for the cabbage patch um, statement was because just on the episode that I watched in the gym this morning, Air Jordans, when he did the deal with Nike, they were hotter than the cabbage patch doll at the time. And I think they were saying that the Nike deal that he struck after three years, they had a target of selling $3 million of Air Jordans. And in year one, I think they sold $160 million. Absolutely crazy. Now, what are you talking about the gym? What does your workout look like? I have a, a high frequency um, training program. And also I like to look after my diet because again, when you're juggling so many different things at once, you have to be feeding your body with, uh, with a really good balanced diet. But at the same time, I just get such a, an endorphin release and a buzz out of training. So I train on average uh, five times a week without fail. Um, we travel a lot, me and my fiance. We were just at a show in Chicago last week, a watch show. Um, we were just in in Greece. We actually now live in south of France, which is where my fiance is from. So after 10 years of living in London, we wanted to, to seek a better quality of life. And now we're based, based out of there. And the important thing is, is to make sure that I obviously maintain a very high routine and, and gym routine. So there's a lot of... A lot of weights, a lot of high intensity training, and uh, I like to do a lot, a lot on a lot of running. For me, I get my best creative ideas when I go out there and I get tunnel vision, and I'll run for around 10, 12 kilometers, and I, I write messages to myself 
through voice messages and then I'll send them to myself at the end of the run. Now, living in the south of France, do you miss the Newcastle sun? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that the sun that we get like for two weeks in the year? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that must be, yeah, like, like I said, living in Florida, it's people ask me, do you miss home? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I miss so many things about Britain, but I do not miss the weather. I mean, England is so beautiful when the sun comes out because it gets so much rain. But I'm like a solar panel. Like when the sun is out, I just have so much more energy and I just find it kind of oppressive with every single day being kind of cloudy and rainy. It's so true. As as we're both outdoorsy kind of people, it just gives you that energy. I mean, even when you wake up in the morning and and 90% of the time you open the curtains and sun shines, it just makes you want to be more productive and do things with your day. But I think what people don't talk about enough is when you take that leap, and you move from the grey, bleak weather or you move from the fast-paced city of London to, to a place like south of France, people don't talk enough about that transition period of how do you keep that killer hard routine when you could wake up and you could go for a dip in the Mediterranean. You could watch the most beautiful sunset. You could relax on the beach. So you have to make sure that you still have those very core principles and routine in place um, and just adapt it and tweak it slightly uh, to what you were used to living in the UK. Brilliant. I hope I'm actually going to be in France, probably the further north though. Um, at the end of the year, I'm going back for my dad's 80th, but I'm the origin story of the second book I'm writing, which is a fiction this time, not nonfiction, is actually set in France and a very, very interesting, lesser known story that happened there during World War Two. So I'm hoping to stand in that actual village and, and kind of finish the writing literally from the town itself. So wow. we shall see. Okay. But yeah, France is absolutely beautiful, beautiful country. I love it there. It is. It really is. And that will be, I mean, when you talk about places to get creativity and writer's block, if, if you actually are in there, then that's going to be a pretty inspiring place to to do that element of the book. Absolutely. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person or are there people that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? I think some, uh, something where the timing is perfect at the minute. This weekend, we're going to the British Firefighter Challenge. For listeners who don't know, this is basically a purpose-built Firefighter-related assault course, it's over two days. There are different categories, different age brackets. There's team relays, and it's just such an amazing, welcoming, warm environment. Uh, we have supported the event since 2019. And if there was anybody to get on the show, if you haven't done so already, would be to get the event organizers on of the British Firefighter Challenge. They have big visions to grow the event even further. Um, and I just think it is such a such an awesome event. So what John Gregory and the team are doing there is is superb. Brilliant. Well, let's make that happen. Another person I heard you talking about in another interview was Lee Phillips, and I'd never heard of yeah. him before. I started following him after I, I listened, but that seems like another person that would be an interesting guest as well. Hundred percent. Lee is an amazing guy. I just sent him a bicep emoji because he's just got a gold uh, medal. Um, I think he was doing the 500 meter rowing relay in the World, Fi World Firefighter and Police Games in Rotterdam. So I've been tracking his his events as he goes. He's a he's a one of our main brand ambassadors. He's a London Fire Brigade firefighter, and I think it's something insane. Like 
21 plus men's health front cover model um uh, and juggles being a whole-time firefighter at the same time and he has a good involvement in the turf games as well the crossfit tournament so would love to connect you guys as well as uh the British Firefighter Challenge to get them on the show. Beautiful. All right, well, we will make those happen. Thank you so much. Then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find the watches, what do you do to decompress these days? My decompressing is is running, for sure. Um, just having the ability to be able to get out the house and put my headphones in and either listen to an audiobook or a podcast in any country that we're in in the world, I'll always try and seek a really nice, beautiful running route, whether it's along the promenade in south of France, whether it's a, a, a running route down the river in Chicago, whether it is around the Bay Area when, when we went to a watch show in, in San Francisco. In Hull, I'll run down at the marina there. There's always ways that, that you can escape and for me, it's never been yoga. It's never been meditation. My meditative state is is running. I go into this sort of autopilot mode. Brilliant. Well, for people listening, where can they find William Wood watches? And are there any places on social media or other areas to find you specifically as well? Yeah, best place to find us. Uh, it's williamwoodwatches.com. That's our main website. You'll have all of our collections, our story, our charitable donations, our ambassadors are all on there. Um, we have some really, really cool content on Instagram, which is our main platform. Uh, so that is, the handle is at William Wood Watches. Very simple. And also, if you want to get really involved and become part of the William Wood community and speak to other customers and see them posting pictures of wrist shots of wearing William Wood watches and get involved in the debate. We have a, a Facebook group. It's called um, the William Wood watches VIP group. And you can request to join in the description. Just say that you heard about us uh, on the podcast and we will be able to, uh, to accept your invite and let you into the, the inner sanctum. Beautiful. Well, Johnny, I want to say thank you so much. It's been such an interesting and different conversation because obviously a lot of the British People that I've had on the show, many of whom are actually firefighters. So for the, the kind of origin story being your grandfather and then the, the, the journey that you've led us through and all the incredible tangents that we've been on has been uh, just an inspiring conversation. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks so much for having me on. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, yeah, looking forward to, to seeing it go live. Mm-hmm.